0: The title for these classes is quite uh, gigantic. Uh, The three biggest challenges that Jews face today, or something like that. Now I don't dare speak uh, on behalf of the Jewish people. I have to note from the get-go that this is just my humble opinion. I want you to disagree, and I want you to disagree not just on this title, but throughout the class. This is supposed to be more of a discussion than just a speech from me to you. Uh, Like any good study, okay? So if you disagree with the three challenges I uh, picked, please feel free to tell me, feel free to disagree, and we can make a whole class just out of that disagreement too. But um, the first challenge I believe uh, that Judaism faces today, perhaps more than any other time during its its history, is the challenge of assimilation. The Pew study came out uh, not too long ago, uh, showing the declining numbers in in uh, Jews around the world. I think America is at a better state than, say, Russia, for example. (coughs) And uh, I think America's number two. Europe is number three. But assimilation is really one of the great curses that Jewish people face throughout the world, throughout the world. There are many reasons for that. I'm not gonna go into the uh, different reasons, but I do wanna go to the root of it and offer my humble approach on how best to fight this assimilation, not just on an individual level, but perhaps even on a collective level. Uh, Let me just start by asking you a question. Do you know what the difference is between a Jew and an anti-Semite? A Jew and an (laughs) anti-Semite. this a joke? Jews can be be anti-Semite. That's true. That's true. Good point. I'll tell you what the difference is. It's very simple. You see, ask an anti-Semite what he thinks about the Jewish people. He'll tell you they're all crooks. They're all thieves. They're a terrible nation. But one second, what about Dr. Levy, your neighbor? Oh, he's an exception. He's a wonderful man. And Mr. Cohen, your, your lawyer? Oh, he's also an exception to the rule. Now, ask a Jew what he thinks of the Jewish nation. He'll tell you we're the wisest, we're the best, we're uh, lamplighters, and so on. What about after leaving your neighbor? He's a schleim muzzle. <laughs> the exact opposite. <laughs> so, when we speak about the Jewish state or the state of our nation, I, God forbid, do, do not want to fall into that trap of uh, this uh, humorous joke. But I do want to speak from a personal standpoint and also from a collective standpoint at the same time, I hope with the same optimism. So I want to go to the very root of assimilation. If this is the topic for tonight, the first challenge, the other two challenges we'll speak about next week and in the following week. But if this is the, the topic for tonight, I think that there is truly one question, one question that has divided the Jewish world since the times of the emancipation, about 300 years ago. One question. Do you know what question that would be? What's What's the question? <laughs> okay. I think there's one question is, how can you be a Jew in the world? How can you be a Jew in the world? We've had many schools of thought. Some have said, you can't, and we'll explore that approach today. You can't. Might as well assimilate or even convert, as some did. Some even very prominent Jews did. Some say said, no, you know what? We can be Jew on the inside, but on the outside, when we face the, grand, the, 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 the grandness of the world, assimilate. At least uh, almost uh, evoking the picture of the ultimate Marano in Spanish, um, during the Spanish Inquisition, right? When they were, I don't know, if have you visited Spain before anyone? So if you visited Spain, I have, especially in the southern part of France, in Madrid, not so much in Barcelona, but anywhere you go in Spain. Uh, you might see um, pork hanging by just regular stores. You seen that? You know why? That comes from the times of the Maranos when Jews wanted to act as if they have abolished Judaism, which was the prerequisite, obviously. So they started hanging pork by their storefronts so that no one would be suspicious of them continuing the Jewish tradition. Pork, obviously, is the antidote to uh, the laws of Kashrut. So that's what they did, so until today, you have uh, pork hanging from uh, windows of storefronts in Spain. But it, it was, there was another approach. On the outside, you, you hang pork, you be like a an laundry, on the inside, you're a angel. We'll explore the different approaches, uh, but I wanna go back again to the very root, and that is the times of the emancipation. And uh, what I'd like to do is, just so that I, I'm not the only one speaking here tonight, I'd like to have everyone read a little bit. So I'd like to go to the very first reference here, Speak about the emancipation. What brought about this liberty to the Jewish people, and see how we reacted. But let's begin here with the first reference <coughs> I'll do with you. Yep. Go ahead.
1: Sorry, I was just tweeting.
0: No. no? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Wow. You are a uh, best friend of technology. That's good. <laughs> I could learn from you. <laughs> um, okay. All right. This, by the way, this first reference speaks of the National Assembly in France, that for the first time now decided to uh, somehow open up their uh, uh, French, uh, 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 the French liberties to any common citizen, but they had, as you'll see, they had some uh, twists added to it so that it wouldn't be that easy to become a regular French citizen. Let's let's speak about their statement okay. here.
1: The Jew in the Modern World.
0: Um, no. Oh, the or National it. Assembly. Yeah, right here, right here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay, the
1: National Assembly, considering that the conditions. Requisite to be a French citizen and to become an active citizen are fixed by the Constitution and that every man who, being duly qualified, takes the civic oath and engages to fulfill the duties prescribed by the Constitution has a right to all of the advantages it ensures. This shall also affect individuals of the Jewish persuasion who shall take the The civic oath.
0: oath. So they added the Jewish uh, persuasion here in in the paragraph, obviously inviting the Jews also to become a part of society. Now, how did Jews react? Jews, some Jews reacted quite favorably. Some reacted with tremendous, even violent opposition. Yes? Sure. Talking about the emancipation, really uh, f- led for, uh, primarily by Napoleon. In, uh, it began with the French Revolution in the late 1700s, and then Napoleon took, reign, took the reigns of France in 1804, and then he decided really to provide equality to all sorts of human beings, to everyone. That's um, that's that's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. That that emancipation. Um, and really, when Napoleon took the world, yes. Go ahead. No,
2: I just wondered what was in the civico that Jews would have a problem with.
0: So that's a good question. So that was my question. Oh, okay. That was my question, and I'm, I'm getting to this. Okay. And I think in Napoleon's instructions to the Assembly of Jewish Notables, which he had two years after, he took uh, France by, by his uh, tremendous force. He really impressed the world in conquering the world and the Austrian Empire and I don't know if... You know, that part of the history, but he was really one of the greatest emperors in the, the, the history of mankind, has known. Uh, it didn't last too long. It lasted about 10 years, and then he collapsed. But um, there is, I'm sure you know the Declaration of Independence, but there is a subtle difference between the paragraph we just read and the paragraph we're about to read. To the Declaration of Independence, that also provides equality, right? How does it go? You know it better than I do. Provide equality and... Uh, Truth,
1: liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank
0: you. Truth, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But you'll see that there's a subtle difference, which I think is key to understanding what this says and to understanding, really, the difference between what Napoleon was offering to the people and what America was offering to its people. Let's just read uh, what the instruction of Napoleon was to the Jewish assembly. Now, let me, let me, let me, let me make, make it very clear. Napoleon, uh, there is no evidence to suggest that Napoleon was an enemy of the Jewish people. In fact, there are many stories about Napoleon in which he reached out to the Jewish community time and time again to show his love and even his admiration for Jews. There's a wonderful story that I say each year on Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, which is the saddest day in the Jewish calendar where we mourn the destruction of both temples. But there's a wonderful story about Napoleon marching through the streets of Paris uh, on the 9th of Av, and he finds a Jew on the side of the street crying bitterly. And he approaches the student and says, "Why are you crying?" He says to Napoleon, "Well, uh, Majesty, you won't understand. What do you mean?" He Says, "Well, we're crying because two thousand years ago our temple was destroyed." Napoleon says, "Don't worry. I'll rebuild it for you." That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> he says, "You don't understand. It's quite different. It's come down from the heavens, and so on." So Napoleon said, "Well, all I can do then is offer you a promise that a nation." that is so attached to its history and cries about its past, is a nation that has its feet solidly in its future. You will see that temple be rebuilt. You will see the temple be rebuilt. I don't want to deviate too much, but I have to... uh, If you've heard of Nathan Sharansky, Anatoly Sharansky, he wrote a book on on, uh, defining identity, I think it's called, on the Jewish identity, but... um, Nathan Cheransky actually uses the story to contrast it with another story. And it actually ties to our subject today, but to another story about this journalist in Israel by the name of Aharon Barnea, who went to interview one of Israel's most dangerous terrorists in prison. He went to interview him, and uh, one of his questions was, well, you know very well that the IDF and the nation of Israel is mightier than that So when was that moment? What was that defining moment in which you actually thought that you can conquer the, the Israeli people and the Jewish nation? And uh, the terrorist, just very sadly, he uh, responded to Aaron Barnett, to the journalist, he said, "Well, that moment actually happened here in prison.
2: He
0: says, what do you mean?" He says it was Passover, and my own security guard, the security guard of my cell, uh, was eating pita and falafel. And I called him and I said, one second, aren't you supposed to be eating matzah and not pita? And the guard said, no, these are rules of the past, they don't belong to us anymore. And the terrorist then said, well, that's when I knew I could conquer uh, this nation. A nation that does not care about its past. It's a nation that can't survive into the future. He contrasts these two stories, a very powerful message, a very even controversial message, but um, I'm, I'm just evoking it just because I spoke of Napoleon's story. But Napoleon was a friend of the Jews. In fact, Napoleon himself uh, evoked—we know at least of two incidences—in which he uh, invited this assembly of Jewish notables, of many uh, tens of Jewish notables, leaders that he himself picked, but that he thought was somewhat influential, and he asked them multiple times, "What can I do to provide this liberty?" also to the Jewish people, not just to all the citizens of France, not just to all the ma- mankind, but, but particularly to the Jewish people. And uh, this, is, this is what he says to them in one of those uh, Jewish assemblies or assemblies of the Jewish notables. Let's let's read the second reference. Why don't you continue? Sure. The wish of His
3: Majesty is that you should be Frenchmen. It remains with you to accept the proffered title. You will hear the questions submitted to you. Your duty is to answer the whole truth on every one of them. Is divorce valid? When not pronounced by courts of justice and by virtue of laws in contradiction with the French code, Mm -hmm. can a Jewess marry a Christian, or a Jew a Christian woman, or a Jew Christian woman? In the eyes of Jews, are Frenchmen considered as brethren or as strangers? Do the Jews born in France and treated by the laws as French citizens consider France as their country? What kind of police jurisdiction have the rabbis among
0: the Jews? Right. Okay. So So he assembled them, asked them all these questions, and said, I want an answer. When you give me an answer, we can work on how to provide equality for Jews in France and all around my empire. Now, um, what's lacking here? If you compare this, I should have uh, also quoted the Declaration of Independence. But what do you think is lacking in this text and the text beforehand? Actually, there are uh, what is it? four words in the Declaration of Independence that are almost here... Uh, um, you know, shouting because he's they he's are lacking. Not practicing religion. Sorry, he's not practicing a, religion. Okay. Okay. You
4: know, you Good. Practice your religion fully. You know, the state being
0: involved. Good. Good. Um, Freedom of religion. That's true. Freedom of religion. I, I think that connects to that. So, who knows the Declaration of Independence by heart? I don't. Does anyone we know it by heart? What well, are so My here. dad.
1: I, I I cannot let my father listen to this. What?
0: all men are created equal yes please yeah and then how does the sentence go yeah that's the sen- that's the sentence yeah, i remember endowed by, by their inalienable creator, right okay endowed in by the creator second grade by the creator or almost referring to god yeah there's no mention of god whatsoever like you said there's no mention of religion whatsoever there's no connection between the human being and god when you have a society or even just simply an idea that is not founded on God, that idea can change Change based on the state of uh, the moods of uh, you, the human being or, or other influences. Uh, I think that explains why another French notable, who was Jean <coughs> Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who authored The Social Contract, is famous for that, uh, but he himself uh, lived a, just a horrible life, a horrible life, the... Uh, you know, self acclaimed uh, uh, moralist. He's a person who impregnated uh, a woman four times and forced her immediately upon birth to leave those children that he had bore with her at the steps of an orphanage four times. When there is no God involved, and that's an extreme example, obviously, but when there's no God involved, and when my only compass is, is my heart or my mind, that can change. I'm a human being after all. I'm limited after all. I'm finite after all. And if God isn't there, as there, you know, as the uh, 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 as the principle that stands there forever, as the solid foundation, uh, then it's a problem. Then it's a problem. But in any case, Napoleon doesn't mention God. Neither did the National Assembly. And uh, I believe that's why it created so many problems thereafter. But what basically Napoleon is asking here, just to summarize this, he was asking the National Assembly, what are you first? Are you first Jewish and then French? Are you first French and then Jewish? If you can first be French and then Jewish, then go ahead. Join my people. Almost reminds me of uh, Henry Kissinger's visit in Israel decades ago when Golda Meir greeted him and Henry Kissinger said to Golda Meir, don't you think that because I'm Jewish, I'll favor your opinions, I'm coming first as an American, I'm first American, and then I'm Jewish. Golda Meir responded so brilliantly, she said, that's great because here in Israel we read from right to left. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> in any case, Napoleon still read from left to right. So, that was the big question. The big question. Now, this was their response. They were given a few days to think about those questions. This was their response. Well, the response itself is astonishing. But let's continue. Frank, go ahead.
5: The only marriages expressly forbidden by the law are those with the seven Canaanite nations, with Ammon and Moab, and with the Egyptians. The prohibition in general applies only to nations of idolatry. The Talmud declares as such since they worship like us the God of heaven and earth and accordingly there have been at several periods intermarriage between Jew and Christians in France in Spain and in Germany but we cannot deny the opinion of the rabbis is against these marriages
0: right so a very diplomatic response yes no yes no yes I mean in history the prohibition of marrying and non-jews was only against uh, the Amnon and the Moabites and so on Uh, But the rabbis are against it, Uh, but um, their response, I think, caused Jews to be accepted into society but yet not fully accepted. I think the great example, which was not happening in France, was uh, the Baron of Rothschild. Baron of Rothschild was one of the wealthiest Jews in Europe, a British Jew. He was elected to Parliament, the British Parliament, in 1847, but because he was Jewish, he refused to take an oath On the Christian Bible And they said fine Well you were elected But goodbye And it took 11 years Until he was insta- reinstated or, or you know it uh, was given the position Finally just because he had that refusal So they were integrated But not fully integrated But there was a big vibe A big earthquake in the Jewish world When Napoleon came up with uh, this offer and when the rabbis responded as such, because no one really knew. What did the leader say? Is it good for the Jews or is it bad for the Jews? The world opening up now. Is it good or is it bad? Many said it's good. Finally, we won't have pogroms anymore, and it's true. After the emancipation, yes, in Russia, there were still pogroms. In Eastern Europe, it's a different story, but in Western Europe, you don't have pogroms anymore. What Jews suffered for many, many centuries. Uh, You don't have blood libels anymore. You don't have many of the curses that befell the Jewish people before Napoleon. On the other hand, assimilation went skyrocketing. And therefore, some rabbis, very few in fact, they were the minority, said that Napoleon is bad for the Jews. One of these prominent rabbis was Rabbi Schneel Zaman of Liari, who was the founder of the Chabad movement, I'm sure many of you have heard of. But he was very much against Napoleon, not only that. He fought against Napoleon with his own students. There's a lovely story about... This, this great rabbi sending one of his uh, students, a Hasidic Jew, he was just a brilliant man, who knew many languages, to go and spy on Napoleon for the Russians. The Russians and Napoleon, of course, were big enemies. The Russians are uh, eventually the ones who defeated Napoleon, <coughs> who brought great defeat, right? Napoleon uh, couldn't take the Russian winter, uh, which happened to many others. Hitler, was uh, was that uh, was Hitler's curse too, but, um, <laughs> He sent some of his own Hasidic Jews, some of his own students, to fight for the Russians against Napoleon. That's how much he despised Napoleon and what he wanted to do to the Jewish world. But there's a lovely story about one of these students who, as I said, spoke many languages. And one day he was in a room with many generals of of, of Napoleon. And he was there, of course, spying on everyone. And all of a sudden, Napoleon storms into the room. This is the legend. Storms into the room. He sees this Hasidic Jew and he says, this guy doesn't fit the picture yet. He goes directly to him. Napoleon takes his hand and places it on this Hasidic Jew's heart. Why? He wanted to see if his heart would pump now irregularly or much faster than usual. Because if it did, that meant that this guy was guilty. He must be a spy, right? The heart did not beat uh, any faster than it would have usually uh, that they would have, uh, any faster The man, uh, was, was completely in control of himself Napoleon said, if that's the case, I guess you're not a spy hmm. This man went back to the great rabbi, to Rabbi Zaman of Liari, and to his friends And he told him the story And he said, this is what happened to me I want you to know that I kept my cool And I continued fighting for the Russians just as you wanted, great rabbi his friends were hearing the story, and they came up to him afterwards and said, How did you do that? That's almost impossible. To be able to control your heart in such an inhuman way, what, what happened? And the Hasidic Jew answered, Well, I'm surprised at your question. That's the foundation of Hasidic thought. That your mind should control your heart. My mind was controlling my heart. That's uh, one of the most foundational pillars of Hasidic thoughts. I'm a Hasidic Jew, that's what I did. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely story. But Rabbi Schnur Zaman Lali was very much against and this is what he writes now to one of his contemporaries. Let's, let's continue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this message now, there was
0: truth to this Burn this letter because Napoleon did find out That uh, Rabbi of Zamanogliari was against him And he personally went after him In fact, Rabbi of Zamanogliari spent These <coughs> final years in this world Running from uh, Running away from Napoleon From village to village until he died In some remote uh, village In Russia, running away from Napoleon So, um there's some truth to this Bernard's letter, he did not want to leave any tracks. But uh, what do you think? Who was right in the Jewish world? Yes, poverty will be abundant, but the heart of Israel will be bound, is that what counts? Or should uh, we finally live, uh, you know, comfortably? What, what uh, position would you have taken if you had lived then? I'm just interested. Anyone? I would
2: never be for poverty. I'm just
0: saying. I would never be for poverty, yes. <laughs> okay, fine. That's a good point. Right, right. Yes. How
4: do you set up the false here or there? Why can't it
0: be somewhere? Oh, I, I think Napoleon wasn't offering a middle ground. Um, it's a good point, but I don't think there was a middle option. was there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they didn't have uh, too many good negotiators there in the Jewish notables.
3: <laughs> yeah. And wouldn't it be against human nature to not want to better yourself, to not want to have a better life? Absolutely. Sure right. be yeah.
0: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You're right. I mean, I don't know. Um, to come out of poverty, live a comfortable life where I don't have to look over my shoulder each and every day, that's, that's extremely tempting. Extremely tempting. On the other hand, this rabbi as a leader, as a rabbinic leader, says, Well, no, I'd rather my people be committed to their God in heaven. Maybe he looked at poverty, though, as a temporary state also, right? Maybe he said we'll have to be in poverty until Napoleon falls. Until uh, something Russian else happens. Was so right. Right. he looking at the Jews from Poland and yep. Yes. Yeah, but Napoleon was was succeeding tremendously in all of his conquers, right? So he was approaching uh, this rabbi who lived in Russia more and more, mm-hmm. right? So then the argument began, because he saw what he did to the Jews of France. He said, what, are we, what do we want here in Russia? That was the big question. Some rabbis were against uh, this opinion. Some rabbis actually favored Napoleon's emancipation. Anyway, we'll never know. I think it, it evokes a different story during the destruction of the temple. I won't go into it with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. Some of you are familiar, but at the peak of uh, the Jewish people's suffering, just before the destruction of the temple, he managed to escape the old city where all the Jews were being choked almost to death, choked and starved. He escaped the walls of the old city by acting as a dead man, because dead bodies they were able to take out. And then the first thing he asked of the great general, the great uh, Roman general Vespasian, that he went to visit, was uh, let me continue my uh, educational institute in Yavne, let Torah survive. Now many people, many commentaries, they one saying, say, is that what you're going to ask? you finally facing the general. He's willing to grant you any request. You're not going to ask for the Jewish people to be saved. All you care about is your institute or the institute of uh, the Jewish academy. It's a big question. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai thought that that would have been too much. And the Roman emperor would have said, get out of here, I'm not giving you anything. Okay. But it's it's a similar situation. It's a similar situation. Rabbi Yochan ben Zakai, by the way, had regrets and told told his last day on his deathbed. And maybe Rabbi Shlomo, I don't know. But (coughs) Rabbi Yochan ben Zakai on his deathbed told his students, according to the Talmud, that he doesn't know which path they will be leading him, path of heaven to the path of hell. (laughs) Maybe because he didn't know whether he did ask for the right thing during that encounter. But in any case. We had moments in history where history was calling us by name almost. And we had to decide which way to go. Rabbi Schnell <coughs> Zamanov decided Napoleon was not good for the Jewish people, some did. But over the years, shortly after Napoleon emancipated Europe, over the years, I think there were five approaches that were developed, five approaches that I believe still exist somewhat today. Maybe not approach one, but some of the other approaches definitely still exist. One approach was very simple. Okay, Napoleon is accepting us now. Great, let's convert and assimilate. We'll live comfortably, and we'll be able to get rid finally of the Jewish of the burden that uh, falls on every Jew. That was uh, the approach of of uh, many Jews. Uh, I think the greatest example we spoke about a British British Jew, but uh, Benjamin Disraeli uh, who was the Prime Minister twice of Great Britain, converted, uh, as you may know. Uh, from Judaism to Christianity just to fit in. Uh, Karl Marx was a convert. We had many Jewish notables who were converts. Why? They needed to fit in. They needed to achieve what they wanted to achieve in society, and therefore they decided to take this approach. Let's read uh, what David Friedlander here has to say. David Friedlander was an intellectual Jew from Berlin, uh, Germany, and uh, he actually advocated what was called... Dry Baptism. We'll, we'll uh, read about this soon. But uh, whose turn is it? Go ahead. It, it was a heavenly feeling to possess a fatherland. What rapture to be able to call a spot a place a nook one's own upon this lovely earth. Hand in hand with your fellow soldiers. Jews. If you will continue They will not deny the title of brother, For you, you will have Right. This is advocating to Jews to join the army. Right and how proud they will feel to grasp this fatherland and become Germans like everyone else Now David Freeland himself advocated dry baptism He said to Jews, you know what, they want us to be baptized Go for it it's Be a dry baptism, why? Because you know deep within yourself that your intentions are not all there You're not doing this to, be bap- to, to become a, a Christian or Catholic You're doing this just to fit in Right? So go ahead and baptize yourselves. He called that dry baptism. And he advocated dry baptism everywhere he went, especially in Jewish communities in Germany. This is what he said. Let's let's continue a little more. Um, Mark, your turn. Go ahead. Yeah. synagogue. right and that's how you called it a church synagogue uh, look I don't blame these Jews I don't know about you I don't blame these Jews I understand look uh, for for so many thousands of years they try to kill us finally you're given this ticket to liberty why not take it uh, yes you're putting everything down the drain everything that you're educating down the drain but you have here uh, finally uh, uh, you know an opportunity for freedom so some jumped on it some went. The, the complete other extreme. Karl Marx not only jumped all over that, but he became one of the most self-hated Jews. He wrote against his own people. Karl Marx, who was, uh, by the way, the grandson of an Orthodox rabbi, grandson. Uh, actually, there's there's a picture of his grandfather. Uh, it's, it's quite amazing, quite amazing. But let's read some of some of these examples. Um, who's next? Go. Ahead. Uh,
4: Karl Marx was converted by.
0: Right. By the way, "A World Without Jews." It's a despicable uh, uh, essay, but uh, many say that it inspired. If you're familiar with the essay, that was very uh, publicly distributed here in America, um, in uh, none other than Henry Ford's newspaper um, out of Detroit. But there was an essay where he uh, that, that he titled "The Jew: The World's Foremost Problem." Many say, and there are many similarities between this essay and Henry Ford's essay. Uh, Henry Ford, he was also a very, uh, a very staunch anti-Semite. Um, he came not, not too far after Karl Marx, right? This is maybe, what, 50 years after Karl Marx. So, who knows? Maybe <laughs> this is crazy because if you think about it, here is an avid anti-Semite being inspired by a joke a Jew, a self-hating Jew, but a Jew. It's, it's, just, it's just crazy. And before, by the way, took Mein Kampf, Mein Kampf of Hitler, and he paid for the, for the distribution of 500,000 copies here in America of Mein Kampf. But anyway, so, so here we see how this self-hatred not only causes destruction to the people themselves, but also inspires destruction all over the world. Henry Hein is another example. Henry Hein was a great German poet. Actually, actually, I think he felt guilty that he had to convert. He converted just because this was a ticket to German society. And by the way, on his deathbed, um, he died on February 17th, which is tomorrow. Tomorrow is your time, okay? <laughs> so if you want to say a special prayer for him, you're welcome. February 17th, that's when he passed away. But on his deathbed, he said uh, famously, "God." Will forgive me. That's his job. God will forgive me. That's his job. But this is what he wrote about him becoming a Christian. Uh, let's continue.
6: From the nature of my thinking, you can determine that
4: baptism is a matter of indifference to me, and I do not regard it as important, even symbolically. My becoming a Christian is the ticket of admission to European
0: culture. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, a ticket of admission to European culture. Fine. In any case, but as soon as this emancipation occurred and as soon as this approach was adopted by some Jews, not not all and even not the majority, but as you can (coughs) see here, uh, intermarriage rates climbed dramatically. In Germany, for example, which is really where uh, most of this happened, or at least the leaders of of these new approaches uh, lived. So in Germany, they rose from 8.4% in 1901, as you can see here, to 30%, 30% in less than 14 years from 8.4 percent to 30 percent, which is uh, just a tremendous growth. Now, that was approach one. It's an approach that, of course, did not last. Uh, obviously, they assimilated completely, they converted. A second approach was what was called to transform Judaism into a cosmopolitan religion. What does this mean? To make it more of a cosmopolitan religion. I'm, you know, I, I jokingly say that when I go to social parties, Uh, As I'm sure you all do, Uh, I'm always on the lookout for Jews. Okay, what can I do? That's my job as a (laughs) rabbi. But uh, I uh, I find it quite interesting because, uh, you know, you can't ask someone, are you Jewish? That's, That's quite offensive. So what would you ask? So I developed a question. My question is, what faith community do you belong to? That's not offensive, right? You agree? Good, I can continue asking that question. <laughs> what faith community do you belong to? If I ask a Christian that question, he'll tell me I'm Christian. If I ask a Muslim that question, he'll tell me I'm Muslim. If I ask a Jew that question, he says, I'm a universalist. I, I, I don't belong to any faith community. And then I say, great, why don't you come over for Shabbat dinner? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's, that's always been the big challenge of the Jew. Our religion, God forbid, is not a particular one. It's more of a cosmopolitan one. It's one that really can apply to the entire world. And therefore, yes, the world can embrace us. We should embrace it. Because really, that's, that's uh, our religion. Now, it's not that that's a complete lie, by the way. It's, I, I, I truly believe that Judaism was meant uh, to shine upon the world, right? Aren't we told to be a light unto the nations? But the question is how... Do we become that light? That's the big question. Do we turn our very essence into a cosmopolitan essence? I think that we lose the flavor of it, we lose the very foundation of it. But this is what this approach uh, was advocating. Who's next? Go ahead, go ahead, yes. Right. So that was their initial stance, and then it changed a little bit. Instead of the Shabbat being conducted on Shabbat, uh, things started to change. Let's, Let's continue. Continue. All right. Right, so anything that seemed like a difference, that seemed like we would stick out, was immediately eliminated. And I think that uh, we see that with, with other laws that they uh, wanted to, to get rid of, like the Kashrut laws and so on. But I, I, I do want to say one thing, that I think that this approach is a novel approach, I have to say. I think the, the other extreme, as we'll see, uh, which is the Orthodox Judaism, which was led by Rabbi Moshe Sofer, is an insulated approach that, uh, that really goes against what Judaism is supposed to be. We're supposed to be, as we mentioned, a light unto the nation. The only problem is that sometimes, as Mark Twain says, that we're so open-minded that our brains spill out. Okay. <laughs> That's Mark Twain's line. I love, I love that line because it's true. Sometimes you're so open-minded. I see that with my children all the time. That if I, if I don't provide clarity, if I say yes, you can go, but you know, I really don't want you to go, and this and that <laughs> It confuses them. it. Doesn't, it doesn't do any good, it really doesn't do any good I think we can't lose our principles for the sake of becoming so uh, embracing of all I think um, whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him Antonin Scalia just, just, uh, just passed mm-hmm. away, as you all know, in his sleep but I think one of the things Americans admired in him is that he was founded in principles, yet his mind was still very flexible. But, but he knew that there was this core that was unshakable. He was committed to it. The Constitution was the Constitution for it. And it's something, to, it's something that made him special. I think it's something that, that we can all admire when people are again rooted in something that is divine and therefore something that cannot be changed. Therefore, something that is unique, then, then uh, that enables that 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 uh, uh, that person to also branch out and become that ultimate tree, a tree that doesn't have roots is not a tree that can last. That's uh, approach number two. I want to skip a little bit because I know that we're running late. Approach three is the Haskalah movement. The Haskalah movement was led mainly by Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn. Um, some lovely stories about Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn was actually a hunchback. He was very ugly. It's a great story I'll share with you. Uh, he was brilliant. He had a brilliant mind. But uh, one day uh, when he, you know how marriages used to happen actually in some ultra-Orthodox circles. Marriages still occur like this today. But uh, do you know that some, some very ultra-Orthodox sects don't meet their spouses until the day of the marriage? for the day of the marriage. That used to be the case in the late 1700s when Moses Mendelssohn lived. Moses Mendelssohn did not meet his bride, a certain woman named Fromit, until the day of the marriage. And the legend goes that when she finally saw him, she (laughs) didn't want to marry him. Why? He was the ugliest man on the planet. He was a hunchback, he was short, he was ugly. You can see a picture of him and uh, you'll understand. So she immediately backed out. She went to the family and said, I'm not marrying this man. Moses Mendelssohn says, I can speak to her. I'll convince her. (laughs) Speak to her, I'll convince her. Fine. He went to speak to her and he said, Look, let me tell you something. Before I was born and before you were born, God came to me, to my soul, and he said that uh, you will be marrying this and this woman. I said to God, please, I have to see the woman, I'll be married. God says, fine, and he showed me this ugliest woman who was a hunchback and she was just terribly ugly. I said to God, look, I can't stand the sight of a woman that's a hunchback and that's ugly like this. If this is the woman I have to marry, I'll take this ugliness upon me and let her be beautiful, please. (laughs) And God agreed. And therefore, I'm a hunchback, he tells his bride. She was immediately convinced and they were married on the same day. By the way, Elie Wiesel tells this story in uh, one of his memoirs. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful story. But that was Moses Mendelssohn, very witty, very, very wise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it reminds me, just, uh, I don't know if I say this, René Descartes. Uh, the French mathematician, the, he was famous for saying, uh, I think therefore I am, right? Mm-hmm. But he says something quite similar. That when Adam and Eve were created, Adam came to God and said, uh, God, why did you make my wife so beautiful? He said, uh, God says that you can love her. And why did you make her so talented? So that you can love her. And uh, why did you make her so, uh, you know, I don't know, so skilled or whatever it is, so that you can love her? And then finally, Adam says to God, fine, but why did you make her so dumb? (laughs) And God says, oh, that's so that she can love you. (laughs) But in any case, that was the background story of Moses Mendelssohn's uh, marriage, and uh, this is what his movement, the Haskalah movement, advocated. Who's, who's next? Uh, Diana, go for <coughs> right. it. Literally. Literally,
2: Haskalah comes from the Hebrew word, Shekel, yeah. yeah. Meaning, reason, or intellect, like you say it. Mm-hmm. And the into European society in language, manners and loyalty
0: to ruling power. Right. Okay. So that's that's uh, what we spoke about before uh, very briefly that that was the movement that really advocated to be a Jew on the inside. Yes, you should definitely continue traditions that what that's what keeps us unique. On the other hand, on the outside when you do interact with the world, then be like a non-Jew. Moses Mendelssohn advocated that, but his uh, approach was not sustainable. By the way, his grandson was the famous composer, Felix Mendelssohn. If you mm-hmm. liked the classical music, you obviously heard about him. Mm-hmm. But this is what um, Felix Mendelssohn's father writes to him in an 1829 letter. It's quite interesting um, to show you that dichotomy that was felt deep within. Um, let's, let's continue. My father felt that the
2: name Moses Ben Mendel de mm-hmm. handicap.
0: Okay. Excellent. So that's that's how uh, the name came about. And uh, the, again, to summarize his approach, just read, you know what, read one more line. Go ahead. This was his approach. This is what he wrote. Be a Jew on
2: the inside and a man toward the outside.
0: Okay. All right. Fine. So that was a third approach. Now a fourth approach, which was much more of an insulated approach, an approach I'm sure that you've uh, uh, heard about, it was started, really, by Rabbi Moses Sofer. By the way, before all of these, I forgot to mention, obviously, but before all of this, uh, before the 1700s uh, or the mid 1700s, all these labels that we find today did not exist, right? There's no such thing as an Orthodox Jew, and there was no such thing as a conservative Jew or a reformed Jew or a reconstructionist Jew or any type of Jew. They just didn't exist. They were formed now with these different approaches. It's quite a pity that we have these labels. I often say that labels are only for meat packing; they shouldn't be used for human beings. <laughs> they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Which uh, human being mm-hmm. wants a label? My kids don't want labels. Uh, no, so why why would Jews uh, want labels? But um, they are here, and I use them here. Unfortunately, I almost I have to because uh, that uh, almost emphasizes the different approaches, and that's how these leaders call themselves too. But I wish I didn't <coughs> have to use these labels. But going back to Orthodox Judaism, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, by the way, his real name was Rabbi Moshe Schreiber. Schreiber in in, uh, German means a scribe. So he just changed uh, the word Schreiber to Sofer. In Hebrew, Sofer means a scribe. But he was known for taking a law that really applies only to uh, produce and uh, it's tithing and so on um, and applying it to some To to exactly what we're speaking about, but something that's completely divorced from its uh, essence. And that law says like this, Everything new is prohibited by the Torah. He was tremendously afraid that anything new from the outside can, God forbid, affect the authenticity of Judaism. We've kept something uh, in such a cherished way for so many thousands of years. That if there's something new, God forbid, it can change that. So Kadash, assuming after everything new should be <coughs> uh, this expressed itself in some of his rulings. By the way, I, I have to say, I mean, Rabbi Moshe Sofer was a, was truly a brilliant man, even though much of his writings did not appear until after his death. Um, but he was a brilliant man, a very very clever uh, uh, human being. But um, so this insulated approach. Was an approach that uh, I don't know if it did much good to uh, the Jewish world that he lived in, and maybe he had to. Maybe he had to. Again, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the state of mind was of Jews at that time, which uh, everything here was, everything then was new for them. This this newfound love from the nations of the world was something that was new to them. I think we still. Suffering for some from some complex because when a non-Jew loves us, we're immediately suspicious. God, for why? Well, because of course they've been trying to murder us for two thousand years. So, so there's something built in here. But so I don't know if we can judge them. But Rabbi Moshe Sofer once said this. He said this about anything new that came his way. Uh, let's let's read the second reference here. Right.
7: So, so, this, this is, easier. yeah, Right.
0: In other words, live within your ghettos, which is fine, okay? Don't uh, uh, <coughs> engage with anything that is new, anything that is revolutionary, and um, um, keep doing what you're doing, what you've been doing for 2,000 years. Now, there's something, there's somewhat of a blessing in that, right? And I mean, you're. Uh, you know, continuing to cherish that which you have cherished for so many years, uh, that treasure you're holding onto uh, steadfastly. On the other hand, I think an approach like that also comes from fear. If you were truly secure in your ways, you wouldn't be afraid of that which comes from the outside.
4: So I don't and know you're if it's. Not, you're, not, you're not advancing at all. You're,
0: right, that's you're true. spinning
4: back to the very traditional. Yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly, exactly. I
4: mean, that's what we create other religions for today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you a a short anecdote, but um, I was once putting tefillin on someone in the streets of Jerusalem, and um, this ultra-Orthodox Jew comes to me and he says, how dare you put tefillin on such a Jew? They're like non-Jews. You shouldn't be caring about that. I was shocked, but um, so I said to myself, well, this is my moment to, to try and say something that, that will put him in place. So I thought for a few seconds, and I said to him, well, one second, you just said that he's like a non-Jew? So If he's like a non-Jew, why do you throw rocks at him when he drives in your streets on Shabbat? Non-Jews are allowed to drive on Shabbat, it shouldn't bother you. <laughs> <laughs> so we find, we find this conflict that they had. Because it's true, they want to advance, but they don't. They want to do many things, but they don't. So I think they themselves live, live within, uh, live, live in a certain uh, uh, you know, conflict or a certain uh, uh, dichotomy. Fine, that's approach fourth. Uh, approach five, Approach uh, the fifth approach is the approach, I love the most. Uh, but again, I'm open for uh, disagreement here. I want you to uh, disagree with me. But this approach basically was started by Shimshon Rafael Hirsch himself, also a German rabbi, who um, is known mainly today for his uh, just a very poignant commentary on the entire Torah. Uh, any given Shabbat, you open a Torah book and you, you might find his commentary, but I would warmly suggest that you read it. He's just an eye opening commentary. But uh, this is how he articulated this fifth approach. Let's read the next reference, go ahead.
7: Now what is it that we want, are the only alternatives
0: Right, and with that last line, a new line was um, was was created. It's a line that's still in the emblem of the Bnei Akiva movement. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with it, but it's called Torah v'Avoda, Torah and work, Torah and the world. Torah or Judaism doesn't have to be divorced from the world. Quite the opposite, it has to be within the world. But it ha- it, yes, it has to remain intact. But it can only truly fulfill its purpose if it shines its message upon the world. Don't compromise it. Stick with it fully. <coughs> but then once you are completely uh, devoted to it, then share its message to the world because it was created for, for the world too. Now, I think it's a, it's a novel approach because this approach first comes from a sense of tremendous security, right? Secure with what I have. I have nothing to be afraid of. Uh, secondly, I think it ties to the Jewish uh, vision of, of how we view Judaism in general, how we view Torah, yes, Torah gave uh, God gave the Torah to the world. In fact, if you think about it, most of the commandments, most of the 613 commandments are commandments that deal with the world. Maybe to teach us that the Torah was here, they very practical commandments, by the way. Most of them are non, non-spiritual at all, right? Yes, I mean, their essence is spiritual, their meaning is spiritual, but their action is non-spiritual. Right? To give tzedakah is to give tzedakah. It's not to pray about tzedakah. And to put on tefillin is to put on tefillin. You think of a, a commandment of a mitzvah, you'll see that it's very pragmatic, very worldly. But I think the reason for that, again, is because Torah is a message for the world itself. For the world itself. And thirdly, I think most importantly, is that what this does is that it enables, uh, uh, I think it enables the world to live in a symphony. See, one of the words, and I've said this multiple times, one of the words I dislike, and it's repeated time and time again. And in fact, so many words are repeated so many times that they've lost their meanings uh, altogether. Like the word love, for example. Who knows what love is? I don't know. Uh, or the word friends. Right, Facebook has butchered that word completely. Completely. But they're words like that. We repeat all the time, and they've lost their meanings. But... One of those words is unity, unity, that's unite and uh, yeah, unity is important in the community and unity and unity. I don't know if I agree with the word unity. I really don't because unity comes from the word uni-one. And what this oneness implies is that in order for me to unify with you, I have to almost uh, get rid of my differences and then join this melting pot. So that we can all live in unity and be one. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that because that's not this approach. I think this approach doesn't speak of the word unity. It speaks of the word harmony. That's a better word for unity. Harmony. In other words, I don't have to lose who I am. I don't have to become less of who I am to be one with the world. Quite the opposite. I have to become more than what I am. Or I have to be much more. Much more in order to unite with the world and I have to harmonize with the world with my own differences It's, it's, it's as I said. It's like a symphony the world can be a symphony Like uh, the violin is the violin the piano the piano and they come together each with their own instruments to play uh, The most beautiful music. I think the world can only be a symphony if the Jew will be a Jew and the Christian will be a Christian and so on and so forth I think that's that's tremendously important. So what this approach does, it says, yes, you're a Jew, that's great. You have your differences, that's great. Now bring those differences, bring that uniqueness to the world so that the world can complete its symphony. Um, th- this, this again, um, reminds us of the words of the first chief rabbi of Israel, Avraham Cohen Cook, who was uh, really a revolutionary leader in many ways. He was a big Zionist, too. But he said famously, and uh, this is part This is his uh, commentary on what he said. But he said famously that if there was one commandment he could add to the Ten Commandments, do you know which one it would be? (laughs) Let me ask you. If there was one commandment you could add to the Ten Commandments, what what would it be? (laughs) So this is what he said. He said, if there was one commandment I could add to the Ten Commandments, is do not stutter. Do not stutter. It says Jews have been spending too much time stuttering about our message for the world, being afraid of it. It's time that the Jew is proud of who it is, who he is, and then brings that uniqueness to the world. Now this is what he says in his own words. Let's, uh, let's continue. Mm-hmm. Just wait.
1: The world's ongoing obsession with the Jew is society's subconscious plea to the Jew to stop stuttering and share with the world what it heard at Sinai that humanity is capable of building a world that will reflect the oneness and harmony of its divine creator and that each and every one of us can transform our corner of the universe into a divine palace. Right,
0: okay, so that again is that commentary on his 11th commandment just think about it, really, I'd like to know maybe by next week you can tell me Ask this question all around. Which would be your eleventh commandment? Okay, he'll tell me next week. But um, I think this is well connected to the idea of um, Shabbat Hagadol, which is be- uh, coming up in about two months. Shabbat Hagadol is uh, one—the uh, only Shabbat of the year that's called the Great Shabbat. The Great Shabbat. It's usually the Shabbat. Not usually. It's always the Shabbat before Passover. Right Now, why is it called Shabbat Haggadol, the Great Shabbat? And that is because a great miracle happened on that Shabbat. What was the great miracle? So many commentaries will tell you that's because when the Jews were uh, finally announced that they were, uh, they were told that they were about to leave Egypt. uh, God said to them, well, I have one final commandment for you, and then you can leave Egypt. That final commandment was to take (coughs) a sheep and then slaughter it, right? Remember that? Now, the sheep was the idol of the Egyptians. The fact that they took those sheep, slaughtered them, and the Egyptians did not react, the Egyptians did not launch a war against them, was a great miracle. That miracle happened a few days Passover and therefore a few days before Passover on that Shabbat, we celebrate that great miracle by calling that Shabbat the Great Shabbat, okay? But let me ask you a question. Is that really a great miracle? I mean, of course. The Egyptians were devastated. They were afraid of the Jew by then. They just suffered 10 plagues. And if you compare that miracle to the many other miracles that happened, to the splitting of the Red Sea, for example... Come on, is there any comparison? Is that the great miracle? So why is that a great miracle? I think there's a great commentary by Rabbi Schneerson which speaks of this pride that we should have in our uniqueness in our own difference in, our, uh, in, in, in what Judaism really stands for. Let's, let's, let's read the next. All okay, the this relates to the question of why is this called the great miracle. Go right.
3: ahead. All of the other great events of the Exodus were God's doing. What makes this Shabbat great is that the Jews cease being slaves in their own hearts and soul. They decided to worship sheep to God, even though it was the God of the Egyptians. With this act, they demonstrated that they weren't afraid of the Egyptians anymore. They would henceforth chart their own destiny based on their inner divine calling. A far greater miracle than God making miracles for the Jews is when the Jews themselves are not afraid to be who they are called to be. And sure enough, when the Egyptians observed this type of self-determination, Fearlessness and courage, they remained quiet. When they observed the courage of the Jewish people, their willingness to stand up to their oppressors with complete readiness and reliance on God, they became silent. For this is the truth about our world. The world is embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed with themselves. The world respects Jews who respect themselves and their Judaism.
0: Right. Okay, so the great miracle was not so much that the Egyptians did not fight them, the great miracle was the fact that the Jews found courage within themselves. Even though they were slaves for 210 years, they had the slave mentality, but they found courage within themselves to stand for their principle. And and he concludes here by saying, Jews, the the world respects those who respect themselves. I I personally couldn't agree more, and uh, the first story that comes to mind, and maybe I'll conclude with it, is a story of Rabbi Tversky, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, who I've mentioned many times. I Gila, you know him uh, personally, right, from Pittsburgh. But... um, Rabbi, Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, Dr. Abraham J. Tversky is a famous psychiatrist from uh, Pittsburgh. He's written many, many books. I think he's an expert on addictions, but um, he tells the story of how one day he was on a plane, I think from Pittsburgh to Chicago, or something like that. And uh, if you know him, you also know that Rabbi Tversky dresses with uh, the long Hasidic garb he has a big white beard and even wears a hat and so on and he was on this plane and then all of a sudden someone approaches him and uh, starts to attack him he says, Rabbi Tversky I mean not by name he says to this uh, he, says, he calls out to him and says hey it's about time you modernize yourself it's about time you stop being so primitive what's wrong with you Jews What's wrong with these clothes? Come on, can't you update yourself? And he went on cursing him a little more. I won't use the words that he used, but uh, Rabbi Tversky listened attentively and then he said to himself, you know what, I'm going to respond in a way that will teach him a lesson. He listens and then uh, immediately responds by saying, you know, in perfect English, I fail to understand your verbiage. See, I'm not Jewish, I'm Amish. I'm Amish (laughs) and the man went red apparently according to what Rabbi said he says oh I'm so sorry I have nothing but respect for the Amish people I'm really sorry I didn't mean to offend you and then it was Rabbi turn he said oh so if I'm Amish you have nothing but respect but if I'm Jewish you have nothing but disrespect you should be ashamed I am Jewish and it's time Jews respect who they are Because the world will only respect those who respect themselves. Mm -hmm. The world will only respect those who respect themselves. I think it's very true. I think it's true in every sphere of life. If you respect yourself as, uh, say, a pianist, we've been hearing a pianist all night long, (laughs) then people will respect your music. If you respect yourself as a parent, then your children will respect you as a parent. If you respect yourself in all spheres of life, then you will be respected. And it's true also when we're Jewish, when we have Judaism as a fundamental. Root uh, route of life We have to respect ourselves then the world will respect us and uh, When we carry that message of Judaism worldwide that beautiful message of Judaism worldwide with our own instrument with our own Jewish instrument to join the world symphony then that instrument will sound its sweetest music It will be respected and yes, it will be celebrated now and forever therefore I think that this fifth approach Is perhaps the best approach, and perhaps it's also the best tool to fight assimilation, to be proud of who we are, not compromise who we are, but on the other hand, not be afraid of the world, and quite the opposite, engage the world with our unique and beautiful instrument. Yes?
4: Do you feel that today that the other labeled movements of Judaism... Mm -hmm. As um, opposed to, I know you glossed over the reform movement in Germany, which yeah. was really out there, but those movements have all kind of coalesced toward the middle. There's differences, but it's like the grass, you know, the surface, and all the parts that are
0: in the yeah. middle that they all overlap. Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I think so. I think that <coughs> the openness of the world, the world is as open today as ever. Um, I think it forces uh, those who are secluded from it to somehow ask themselves these questions again and again. Uh, We can't be as secluded as we wanted to, so how should we deal with it? So the questions are being asked, definitely. I don't know if the answers are being provided. The questions are being asked, but um, I would hope so. I would hope so. I don't know. Sometimes you know the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The ultra orthodox are getting more ultra, and uh, the less are getting more uh, getting less. But I would hope so. I would hope so. That's
4: really not true because I mean, as a as a reformed Jew, mm-hmm. I mean most reformed congregations have Saturday morning Torah stuff. Yes. I mean that never. No. That, that was so far right. removed from anything thought. That's any true. That's true. Ten fifteen years
0: ago. That's true. Um, No no doubt. The services, the the rituals,
4: um, not only the service, but the community, the
5: holy
0: community, we call
4: it reform, the holy community. Those concepts were never around. Right, right. They're all coalescing to the mill.
0: Absolutely. I think from uh, a reform Judaism standpoint, I think you're right. I think I'm noticing more and more of a movement to the center. from an ultra-Orthodox standpoint, I don't know if I'm noticing that. I was speaking from that standpoint. Um, noticing a move to the center? Yeah. yeah. No, I don't think I am. Uh, but you're right. The Reform Movement has changed a lot from its earlier days. I actually just visited, uh, what, two months ago, the, the Reform Temple in Cincinnati. And I uh, was told of all of its different customs, customs that some of them are non-existent today because they were so f- far off. So you're right. Yeah. Yeah.
6: I would yeah. Even- who are actually blending in very much so, yeah. as in the Haskalah movement, but have the principles and the observance of and, and maybe I'm going too
0: far. Right. No, I agree. I also think that there's an ingrowth There's a growth from, from within that's happening also. I mean, you know, the average family has many children and so on. But but you're right. Um, look at uh, the world has changed, right? I think after the Holocaust the world opened up completely, the Jewish world opened up completely and then we had to to find ourselves in the world yet remaining uh, loyal to identity, so so I think you're right right. The difficulty is you're such a
6: strong group on the right that has a pretty strong presence
3: Right
0: Sometimes it's all you hear Yeah.
4: Yeah
3: So uh, we've talked about uh, um, how to combat it, but uh, if we're talking about the biggest challenges facing Jews today, what is the cause of assimilation today? I understand 300 years ago, 250 years ago. But today, uh, where we live a nice life, let's just talk uh, isolated America, we live a very nice life, Mm -hmm. probably the nicest uh, period of time for the Jews in the history of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And yet we have great assimilation. I think before you can uh, identify an approach to combat it, you probably have to approach or find uh, what the cause, what the root cause
0: of it is. Right. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, absolutely. I, I think the question, though, remains the same, how to be a Jew in the world today. I think the question remains the same with the comforts or without the comforts, how to be a Jew in the world today. Uh, and I think that that this this question is asked um, actually in, in a way in a much Stronger way, because the temptations are stronger. <coughs> temptations to live.
3: But but those who
0: are assimilating today don't
3: necessarily want to be Jews anymore. They don't want to be in the Jewish world. Those who want to be in the Jewish world are finding a way to live in the Jew, to live in the world. Right. But it's those who don't want to be in the Jewish world anymore who are doing the assimilating, for whom it doesn't have any meaning anymore.
0: Yeah, but then the question is, well, then why don't they want to be Jewish anymore? Because the they, so they,
5: they don't know enough. I mean I mean we've done it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean more than the fact that the opportunities are are here mm-hmm. but I think it's the fact that Mm-hmm. You know, you're lucky to learn Aleph Bet. You're lucky to learn enough to be able to do, to have a Bar Bat Mitzvah. Maybe some went on to Confirmation, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But there's, but our biggest—I mean, I, I think our biggest challenge is ourselves—that we have not found a way to to encourage Jewish education with our children that stick beyond, you know, 13 years old to us it comes down to how we live and, and teach our children or do not teach our children and how we observe and what they see I think is what happens.
0: Right. No I, I agree. I agree. I think we haven't taught our children what this instrument is all about. Instrument that we spoke about. And, and I now why maybe it comes look at some point maybe it comes from from some disrespect that we had towards this instrument. Not necessarily disrespect because it's a strong word, but disengagement with this instrument, or oh, disinterest oh, in this, in, uh, this instrument. Uh, look, at the end of the day, if I, if I am not, Mark Twain, again quoting him, famously said that people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on educating the children, And for $5, they lose it all. Which $5? When they're they're at an an entrance to an amusement park and they jump (coughs) over (laughs) the entrance to save $5 in front of their children. That's Mm -hmm. when they lose it all. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. it's true in Judaism. So we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in Jewish education. But uh, sometimes, uh, you know, for $5, we lose it all. Uh, we, we show our children the wrong example at home. And that that's, comes perhaps from a disinterest. I, I also speak of, you know, there's, there's a dropout. Uh, assimilation can also be rephrased as a dropout from Judaism. I think the dropout from Judaism occurs because of the drop-off Phenomena. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, you bring your kids to Hebrew school. You couldn't care less what happens there. You 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 drop them off, you pick them up, and that summarizes the Jewish experience. Mm-hmm. When we don't show any interest in our instrument, that creates a dropout. It's true. They can't be blamed. Can't be blamed.
7: Two things. Yes. One thing. Very good. One, And number two, yeah. I think the strongest way to get that there
4: when you've done it is to uh, close birth rate.
7: Mm. Very good. So now suddenly there's something there of living. hmm It's pride and I don't think you
0: understand in in a huge world where you're going to be sound. Right, right. Right. That's true. Birthright is a great tool. I, I couldn't agree more. The question, though, is what happens afterwards. I think birthright still hasn't figured it out. It's a a great organization, don't get me wrong. But I think the big question in Judaism particularly uh, is is the what-then question. What then? You get bar mitzvah, and and then what? Then what happens? You get married, and then what happens? You go to birthright, and then what happens? I think there has to be some some, method of sustaining that excitement, sustaining that experience. And uh, the only way, I think, in my eyes, is, again, to go back to the instrument and play it again and again each and every day. I once asked my rabbi, uh, the world scholar, I love him and admire him and revere him all at the same time, Rabbi Dean Steinzeltz. He was uh, coined by the Time magazine as a a once-in-a-millennium scholar. But I once asked him if he had to condense Judaism, the whole idea of Judaism into one word, what would it be? He didn't say Torah, he didn't say mitzvah, he didn't say any of that. He said consistency. Mm -hmm. Consistency. You have to be consistent. Be consistent. Consistency also shows that you're serious about it. it. shows your children that you're serious about it. Aristotle famously said that it's easy to fly into an emotion. It's easy to fly into ecstasy. But to know how, when, why, and how, and uh, what, is not easy, and it's not a task that everybody can achieve. That's what Aristotle said. But to not a channel that emotion into something consistent, that's very hard. But, but ask any musician, you can ask the pianist, that's what makes any great musician a great musician, that they consistent practice again and again and again. Yes? Very well said Yeah 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 and what The Baal Shem famously said about joy That um, A home without joy is like a body without a soul A Jewish home without joy is like a body without a soul Right? Yeah All right, any other questions, comments, ideas? All right, we'll See thank you, you very next much.